And I'm going to be reading the scripture for tonight. It comes from a lot of different places. So uh, Luke 9:51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Hebrews 5, 1 through 3, and 7, 23 through 27. Every high priest is selected among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as the sins of the people. Now, there have been many of these priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. This is the word of the Lord. These passages and what we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about um, is basically this. Our priestly service and even our pilgrimness, our feeling of exile here, all happens in a context of having a high priest, Jesus. So your priestly service as a man or a woman right now in Athens happens in the context of Jesus' priestly service to you. And that's the only way anything we've said this spring is good news, is hopeful news, is life-giving news, and will lead to joy instead of just a life of, of burnout and frustration. So we're going to get into this. Let's pray before we do. Jesus, the passage that we just read, your living word that's alive and fresh tonight, you just told us uh, that you are a high priest who truly meets our needs. And you just told us that you are alive forever and so your priestly service never ends. So even right now, that means right now, you're pastoring us. You're shepherding us. You're Binding up our wounds right now. Right now, we're on your minds and you pray for us in ways that would give us goosebumps if we could hear. Right now, you know us. Right now, you know what to say, you know what to ask, you know where to push, you know where to heal. So our prayer and our need is that in these next few minutes together as we Look into your word as we hear from you. Be a priest to us and pastor us. Pray it in your name with great hope. Amen. This is something that um, I've talked with some of y'all about in the past and might uh, be familiar or strike a memory in you. But I want to think about it again, and um, I am speaking more to your imaginations tonight than your brains. And that's an important distinction. Your brain is just kind of there to process information, to hear principles or ideas and put them together and maybe say, what's this mean for me? But 
I want to speak to your imaginations, which means um, I want you to try to enter into um, some of the things I'm talking to you about and, and, and think and wonder and allow yourself to be curious. Even if it means daydreaming a little bit, taking an image or an idea or an example or an illustration and letting it linger in your mind even as I go on. This is the first place I want to get you to turn on your imaginations, and I'll give you a good bit of fodder to stir your thoughts. The idea is this. We don't tend to expect very much from our leaders. We tend to be people who are suspicious that leaders or people with power are going to use it for their own good and leave the rest of us, little people, to fend for ourselves. Tends to be our default expectation of our leaders. And this isn't just an American thing, it's, I think, everybody. Some examples. Go down memory lane or down history's lane. February 11th, 1979. The Shah of Iran, when it became clear that his regime was going to be toppled, filled up bags and bags of cash and fled Iran and sought safety in the U.S., and he left all of his people behind to fend for themselves in the Iranian Revolution. Happened again, February 22nd, 2014, more recently. The former president of Ukraine, when the Maiden Revolution was happening, and it became obvious that his regime was about to be toppled, filled up bags of cash, flew to Russia seeking safety, and he left all his people behind to fight and fend themselves. You saw this one on the news. It's recent. August 15th, 2021, the president of Afghanistan, or the former president of Afghanistan. You saw that, right? It's becoming more and more obvious. They had a few days notice the Taliban is coming, 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 getting closer and closer to the presidential palace. When he finally reads the writing on the wall that my regime is probably going to be toppled, he packed $150 million of cash and he flew to the UAE for safety. And he left all his people behind to fight and fend for themselves under the Taliban, which they still live under. 2008, the economic crisis. There's a few month period where hundreds and hundreds of banks in this country are all collapsing. And the economy itself is collapsing. And CEO after CEO after CEO of these failing banks um, arrange what are called golden parachute severance packages, $30 million retirement packages to retire with their golden parachute right before all their employees get fired with nothing, left all their people. That's why we expect so little of our leaders. Our leaders so often give us so little and keep so much for themselves. The pattern is trouble comes, leaders flee, and all the rest of us are left behind to deal with the consequences ourselves. Are you imagining? Are you making connections? I want you to start wondering what kind of leader is Jesus Christ? See, like everybody else, trouble comes. 
leaders flee, stow the cash in the bag, find refuge and safety somewhere far away while the people that you were there to lead die on their own? Because the pattern is so entrenched and just so predictable and it makes us maybe so cynical, um, I think that's a big reason why we've all been so surprised and really the whole world has been surprised um, by uh, Voldemort Zelensky in, in Ukraine. So it's been about 20, or no, 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 it's been about 14 months now since that war started last February. And if you remember the very early days of the war, if you were following that, there wasn't a human being on the planet that thought Ukraine was going to last more than about three days. The mighty Russian army was coming, and they were going to steamroll right across the border and just level Kiev. Um, he was a dead man walking. News had already broke that there'd been hit squads sent in um, to target him. That was the environment in which he chose to stay. Now, our government got worried about his safety, and they arranged um, a secret way out to get to Poland. Uh, the night before the war started, so that his life would be spared. And do you remember what his response was? I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And he began to rally not just his own country, but his whole world. Now, again, it's been 14 months. He's still in Kiev. He's still fighting. And he still has no plans to go anywhere. Now, why did he stay? The answer is really simple, and it's really obvious. Um, because that's where the fight is, and that's where his people are. Why would he go anywhere else? He's their leader. So the connection to these passages in Holy Week, and Good Friday this Friday, and Easter on Sunday, the connection isn't so much the question of why did Jesus stay in Jerusalem and fight? That's not the question. The question is more so, how did Jesus ever get to Jerusalem in the first place? Um, now, let me fill in the gaps here a little bit because you might not be familiar with the gospel accounts. The gospel are four different eyewitness accounts of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all four of them, the authors are very keen for you to begin asking the questions, if you're paying attention to what they're saying, they're trying to provoke in you a question of, why is he going there? Why is he going there? It's like in the scary movie when the naive little people like walk right into the trap and the audience is like, no, you idiot, don't go to the basement. Are you crazy? Attentive readers of the Bible, of the New Testament, are supposed to be asking, why are you, why, why are you going to Jerusalem? Don't you know what's going to happen to you? Can't you read the writing on the wall? Peter got it. His disciples got it. Peter's like, turn the heck around and go the other direction. Don't you know what's going to happen to you uh, when you get there? And so the writers are just begging the question, how did your high priest ever get himself into such a bind? How did he ever wind up hung on a cross? How foolish and how avoidable. How easily avoidable. Now Luke's answer to the question of how in the world did he end up there of all places 
is simple. He walked there. You're grateful for the obvious answer, aren't you? Uh, he says at Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, so Jesus is aware of what's going to go down in Jerusalem, he set his face, or he kind of resolutely turns himself towards the danger, towards the fight, towards the battle, and he starts one step after another, making decision after decision to keep walking towards Jerusalem. Because we don't have time to read a whole gospel right now, let me just give you a couple of snippets. Luke 13, Jesus went through the towns and the villages teaching as he made his way up to Jerusalem. Listen to Luke beg the question, why are you going there? Luke 18, Jesus himself, he takes his disciples aside and he says, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that was written by the prophets about me will be fulfilled. I'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They'll mock me, insult me, spit on me. They'll flog me, they'll kill me. And on the third day, I'll raise again. And then Luke says in chapter 19, after Jesus had said these things, he went up to Jerusalem. So how did he get there? How did he get in that most horrible of places at the wrong place at the wrong time? Um, He walked himself there. Why did he walk himself there? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. It's where he wanted to be. That's where the battle was. That's where D-Day was. That's where his people needed him. That's where you needed him to be. You needed Jesus to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. You would have no hope. And you would be defeated by death and defeated by your sin that you can't undo. If Jesus had saved his skin, packed his bags, and headed in any other cardinal direction than south. Straight towards Jerusalem, which for him was straight towards hell. Okay, a couple of years ago, um, Anna and I saw this documentary pop up on Netflix on, you know, where all the different, see all the different shows and trailers. And it was a 9-11 documentary. It was the 20th anniversary in 2021. And we were both in college here. I was a junior when 9-11 happened. I have vivid memories of that day. Um, I, I was not personally impacted by that day, like with losing any family members or something, but it's not a day, like it's a dark day to me still. It's not something I like watching documentaries about just because of what it brings back. But Anna and I, it's been 20 years and we're like, okay, let's give it a try. If we don't like it, we'll turn it off. Well, pretty early on into the documentary, what's interesting and what hooks us is that um, there's a, a ton of footage that we'd never seen before or heard about like video footage. And the, vo- the footage that, um, that we saw in the early opening scenes of that documentary was um, right after the first tower had been hit by the plane, the th- all the floors above it were just kind of engulfed in flames. 30 floors at the top of that tower were just kind of on fire. And the footage um, was on the ground level on the street of fire truck after fire truck after fire truck pulling up. And these guys um, getting out and putting their tanks on and getting their axes and their hose reels. And they start walking into the building. And all of them, before they get into the lobby of the building, are looking up. 
at the top of that building. So they get inside, there's the fire alarms blaring in the background, and they're all in a corner. They're with this captain who's trying to kind of organize the troops and, and give them marching orders of how we're going to attack this fire and put it out, and basically tells them, um, 90th floor, everybody hit their stairwells, 90th floor. And the reason they were going to the 90th floor is that's where the people were stuck. That's where the calls were coming in for help, 90 floors up. And what was significant is you saw the look on these men's faces as they were carrying all this gear and without a hesitation just start walking towards the stairwells. But you could tell on their faces they knew they were never coming down. There was that level of sobriety on their faith. This was not just another fire for them. But there was also this determination. Nobody was arguing. Nobody was saying, hey, Captain, don't you think like we should wait this out and see what happens? So there was also this resigned sense of this is what we do. We're firefighters. We save people. This is what we do. And if the people are on the 90th floor, then let's go to the 90th floor and get these people out. And they did. Hundreds and hundreds of those people were able to get down those stairwells because of the room that those firefighters made. And I want to ask your imagination again. Can you see the look on Jesus Christ's face as he knows full well what's about to happen to him? And right before he voluntarily climbs up that cross to bear the sins and guilt of his people, he turns around and he looks up. What kind of look do you think he had on his face? What do you see? Is he overwhelmed? Of course he is. He's no idiot. Um, is he looking for a way out? That ship sailed. There's no way out. And he's not really looking for a way out anymore either. I think you'd see a similar look on his face that you saw in that documentary on the firefighter's face of this steely determination of this is what I was born for. Where else would I be? Um, he is literally born for this. Do you remember the nativity account when the angel appears to Joseph and is basically telling him, hey, your fiance's pregnant? The angel said to Joseph, Mary shall bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, which in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. And the angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. So when Jesus looks up at that cross and says, this is the moment I was born for, he means it literally. This is the moment that he was born for. So Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem from the moment that God chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world. That's when the plan was set in motion. That's when his face turned towards what he would have to do to get you and to get all of those that he is saving. Why? Why? I know um, all of you have seen plenty of those St. Jude's commercials one way or another, like YouTube or wherever, right? They're the ones that we usually try to click skip ad as fast as we can because they're so sad. But if you've ever 
resisted the urge to click skip and you've watched one of the St. Jude's ads, um, they're all filled with this heartbroken parent describing how their healthy little four-year-old or five-year-old all of a sudden started getting sick, was eventually diagnosed with cancer. And just, uh, you see the kid, you see their son or their daughter looking like no child should look. Just sick, some of them on death's doorstep. And all the parents in these videos and these commercials say the same thing. You remember what they all say? I just wish I could trade places. I just wish I could be the one who had cancer and was dying and she could be the one who's healthy and has a full life. But the heartbreaking thing about those commercials is that there is no way, there's no physical way for you to trade places with another person. If there was, parents would do it every day. Is there a way for me to get infected? And by me getting infected, my child is cured? They'd do it. There's no way to do it. Hebrews 5.1, this verse on your page says every high priest represents you to God to offer sacrifices for your sins. This is interesting. Christianity is not a religion that calls you to offer sacrifices for your sins. It calls somebody else to offer sacrifices for your sins. Somebody who's equipped to offer sacrifices for your sins. But here's the problem with all the priests. Every last one of these priests. They all knew full well that animals that they sacrificed, the lifeblood of animals poured out on the altar for the blood of the people in place of the blood of people like a scapegoat. They all knew that a goat, a sheep, a lamb, a bull, is in no way equal to a human being. Is in no way equal to a human being. And can atone for the sins of a person. Listen to Hebrews 10, verse 4. It's impossible. This is, the script, this is scripture speaking. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never Take away sins. All they can do is symbolically ask as a placeholder until and unless something that could take away sins comes. So they couldn't, in other words, they couldn't trade places with the patient. The priest couldn't offer himself in your place. But why? This is the, the, that middle chunk, Hebrews 5. Um, Because they're just like you. Do you remember, this is a long, long time ago. It feels like way longer than a few months ago. But do you remember, it might have been week three or week four of this series. We talked about the high priest Joshua from the book of Zechariah. How he appeared in filthy clothes before the Lord and how the Lord gave him new clothes. Uh, And we said, every priest, uh, Joshua, all of them, just like us. Well, these priests are just like you. They're they're ignorant like us. 
They're weak just like us, the passage says. They go astray just like us. They're subject to weakness just like us. They are battling their own sins, as we say it today, battling their own inner demons just like us. And in Hebrews 7.23, they need a substitute just like us. They need somebody else to sacrifice on their behalf too. So how could they offer a sacrifice on your behalf? It would be like a mom with stage four cancer saying, I just wish I could trade places with my daughter who has stage four cancer. The trade would be sweet, heartfelt, but it wouldn't bring any other outcome. And that's what Hebrews 7 says. The problem with all these priests, with all these other attempts, other ways to make you right with your God, to clean you forever, um, the problem with all these other ways is they keep running aground. In the case of the priest, they keep dying. So they can't keep interceding for you. They can't keep sacrificing on your behalf. They can't keep praying for you. They can't keep representing you before God. But then he speaks of another priest, another high priest, the priest's high priest, your high priest. If you do not know Jesus, if you're not alive in Jesus, if you're running from Jesus, um, this is the high priest that is offered to you with the question of what priest are you trusting in to clean you? What do you think is atoning for a past you can't undo in a future you can't secure? as Jesus offers himself to you as your high priest. So go back to the St. Jude's commercials. It is true, it is heartfelt, it is 100% of the time, it is the case that these moms and these dads mean it with every fiber of their being that they would, in fact, take this horrible disease upon themselves. They would go through all the pain, all the suffering, and the death, if their kid could be set free from this and could be cured from it. Even mediocre dads feel that way. Even bad moms feel that way. So let's do some logic like Jesus often does with us. If your fathers, though evil, love like that, if your mother would do that for you, how much more would a father who is perfect, who is not sinful, who is not selfish, who doesn't pack bags of cash looking out for his own interests, but who is to his core, at his essence, a giver, who is in his essence love, who has nothing to gain from you but only to give to you, how much more does he feel in his heart towards sinners that fatherly instinct of, oh, that I could trade places with you, that I would be the one on the bed diseased and dying, that you would be the one healthy and with a future. Is your imagination able to grip that? Are you, are you able to imagine that? I know you're able to imagine a human parent feeling that. 
Can you imagine Jesus feeling that? Some of you can say, yeah, I can imagine him feeling that for somebody else, but not me. Not, I, I know too much about me. And I just want to point your attention back down to the passage. Does Jesus, as our high priest, understand that he's dealing with sinners? Look how often that word appears. Is he uninformed? And he thought that he was giving his life as a sacrifice for the righteous, for the pure, for people with immaculate pasts who make awesome decisions all the time, for people with impeccable follow-through, for people who've kept every one of their 2023 resolutions, for people who've never lost their temper? Is he under that impression or is he under the impression that he climbed a cross of curse to trade places with sinners? Well, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And like no dad and no mom could ever trade places with their kid and spare their kid that suffering and that pain and that death and that disease. And while no priest in the Old Testament at the temple And no strategy now, no amount of technology, no amount of education, no amount of money, no amount of therapy, no amount of anything can accomplish that for you. God can, and does, and will. It's his reputation. Why would he be telling you all these things if it was not his delight and his reputation? Why would he be advertising this so broadly and repetitively if it was not his heart's deep delight and desire to say, let me trade places with you. I can do it. And that's just what he's done. And so can you see that look on Jesus's face, not just looking up at what he was about to experience on the cross, But can you see the look on his face as he looks at weak, look at all just the adjectives that are used to describe us, um, ignorant, straying, weak, sinful sinners. Can you see him looking at them, at somebody like me, somebody like you, somebody like all of us? And like that mother looking at her daughter, oh, what I would give to trade places. Can you see him actually successfully having traded places with you? If you have looked to this Jesus by faith, if you have abandoned all those other futile attempts to cleanse a past, to secure a future, to give yourself meaning and hope in the present, to conquer death, if you have abandoned those paths and there was one man standing, one hope left that you have turned to, in other words, you have put your faith in him, What that means for you is what everything we've said this semester, you're a priest, you are holy unto the Lord, you have been set apart for him. Your life is no longer yours, you belong body and soul and life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has atoned for your sins. It means that you're a missionary like he is now. It means that you are bent outside of yourself towards other people now. It means he's putting you back together all the way into wholeness now. And it means you're forever close to God when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. If you're in Jesus, how do you get closer to Jesus than in him? 
It means you're irreversibly near. It means you're forever beloved. It means you're untouchably clean. Once for all. And that's the whole point that he's driving home in this last paragraph that I'm just going to ask you to go scan with your eyes even right now. But because Jesus lives forever, verse 24, he has a permanent priesthood. This is why your hope is permanent, why your cleansing is permanent, why your nearness is permanently secured. It's why you can breathe easy. It's why you can sleep well at night. It's why even when you face daunting things like tests or not having internships or not getting to live with people you wanted to live with or going through depression or dealing with spiritual struggles, It means that you have a priest who will always ever be your priest and nothing can change that. But his priesthood is permanent. Therefore, he is able to save completely, not most of the way, not halfway, meet him in the middle. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Never gets tired of it, never burns out. Such a high priest truly meets your needs. Your needs. Your needs, like everybody else, your unique needs. He is holy and blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day after day after day to keep atoning for our new failures to love He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself up on a cross. So friends, if you're in Jesus, you can hear heaven say over you and the Father himself say over you, you're going to be just fine. Except not in a cheap kind of trying to distract you from the pain that's coming, but in a deep, profound, infinite way. You are going to be just fine. You really are even come what may, even in the face of all the odds, even no matter what circumstances come, you're going to be just fine because you're a priest who has this high priest. Let's pray. Jesus, show yourself as an active priest, not a dead priest that we get around to talk about and share inspiring quotes from, but a living priest who right now tonight in Eastern Standard Time is ministering and teaching and clarifying and softening and healing and convicting and rebuking and correcting and encouraging and breathing life back into us. Prove yourself alive. Show yourself resurrected in the imaginations, the hearts, the lives of me and all the people in this room or who listen. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.